You are listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. For more information about our church, please visit www.hopechurchipswich.net. Well, good morning from me. My name's Tim. Uh, Just want to welcome you, particularly if you are here visiting us. We've been going through the book of Luke, and this morning we meet uh, a really fascinating scene. There's so many things through the book of Luke which astound us about Jesus, which amaze us. But for some reason, this story today is a bit like a spike in the seismograph of what on earth is going on here. We're going to read it, and then I'll pray, and then we'll go into the story. We're in chapter 9, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. But he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day, Be raised. We pick it up at verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. But when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud, saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. We're just going to read the first three verses of Hebrews as well says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Let's just pray. Father God, we thank you for your word that brings life, that brings understanding. Lord, we thank you that it shows us who you are. And just as Peter was interrupted by you in this passage, please would you interrupt us today in our misunderstandings, in our wrong ideas. Would you interrupt our presumptions and our assumptions? Help us to hear your voice this morning. Help us to see Jesus for who he really is and to know the joy of what he has done. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's a, it's a perplexing, baffling story, isn't it? What on earth is going on here? 
even though we've been following this man who has done amazing things, who has taught incredible teachings and healed people, even raising people from death, doing incredible miracles that we've never seen before. For some reason, the transfiguration seems almost too unrealistic to comprehend. Here is Jesus chatting with two people who have been dead for hundreds of years. His face changes. His, his clothes emanate dazzling light. Even by Jesus' standards, this seems alar- alarmingly unlike anything that we have comprehended up until now. What on earth is going on here? Many movies have plot twists, don't they? They have a great reveal. Something happens in the movie where the penny drops. We understand the true identity of one of the characters for the first time. We, we are left gobsmacked sometimes. Oh my goodness, that person is also that person. Or that person is really that person. And something about the story completely changes. Oh my goodness, this changes everything. Or perhaps, oh my goodness, this makes sense of everything. I mean, we all knew Darth Vader was the baddie, right? We all knew that he was uh, the leader of the empire. We all knew that he was the lord of the Sith. We didn't know he was Luke's father. Suddenly, everything has changed. There's other famous movies that have big plot twists, like The Usual Suspects or, uh, or The Prestige or uh, Fight Club, The Sixth Sense. And it's when a a character's real uh, identity is revealed that the penny drops. Oh, my goodness. This changes everything. Or maybe this makes sense of everything. There were hints in the movie up until now. It makes you want to go back and watch it again, doesn't it? What did I miss? What? what? Oh, my goodness. Yeah, of course it's him. Of course it is. It It was telling us all along. And something of that nature is going on here at the transfiguration. Jesus is revealed for who he really is. These disciples that are onlookers here, they get to be partakers of of seeing the, the curtain lifted. And just seeing a peek behind, oh my goodness. Wow, we're seeing something of the glory of God here in Jesus. If we read this passage clearly and we interpret it using scripture, as you're supposed to when you read the word, and if we have helpful helpful commentaries like I've had as I've studied this and looked into it, we can understand clearly, one, who Jesus is, two, what he came to do, and three, the life he has won for us. Firstly, who is this Jesus? Who is this man? Now, if you look through uh, the, the Gospels, the biographical accounts of Jesus' life, you'll find that this question is one of these kind of hinted at things, like in one of those movies. What's going on here? There's something that's not quite clear here. Who is this man? This question has been asked throughout. Who is this man? And even in the nativity account, who is this? That angels appear. Who is this that shepherds just turn up? We hear the, 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 the religious rulers asking, who does this man think he is? Who is this that can say these sorts of things? Even the disciples say, who is this that he can speak to the wind and the waves and they obey him? Who is this? And as we read just now, just before the transfiguration, Jesus himself asked, asked the question, 
Who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? The question, who is this, is, is always going on throughout the Gospels. And at the Transfiguration, we get something of a penny drop moment. This is a revelation of who Jesus really is. One of the ways we, we are exposed to this, one of the ways we see this is in the imagery around this account. The imagery of what we see at the top of this mountain. And if we know our Bibles, it's familiar to us. The imagery we see, Jesus is at the top of a mountain. There is a, a cloud, a glory cloud. There is, there is dazzling light. And there is the voice of God. These things, to those of us that know our Bibles, they sound familiar. They sound familiar because in the Old Testament, when Moses was up Mount Sinai, he said, God, I want to see your glory Show me your glory. Show me your face. God says, you can't see my glory. You can see something of it. But if you see my glory, you will die. There was a cloud of glory that followed the Israelites, that kept them safe from the enemy. The imagery that we see here is, is to expose to us the glory of God. It's teaching us about the glory of who he is. They are signs. They're representations of the majesty, the greatness of God. God's way of expressing his transcendence. He's far above his glory, his all-powerful godness. I mean, imagine being one of those Israelites as they were coming out of the land of Egypt. And they thought, we're being followed by the enemy here. We're going to get killed. And yet they know this huge pillar of cloud. This pillar of fire. And they know there is something bigger, way bigger than our enemy that is protecting us. God's imagery that he gives is to show something of his glory. Moses came down that mountain with the, uh, having, having met with God. And it says in Exodus, his face shone. So much so, so that people turned their face. Can you veil your face? Can you hide that? It's too bright. What do we see in our passage? What do we see at the transfiguration? You see, Moses had reflected light on him. A little bit like the moon. We know the Bible says uh, God gave us the sun to rule by day, the moon to rule by night. But we know the, 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 the sun gives off its own light. The moon only reflects the light of the sun. A bit like those glow-in-the-dark stickers, if any of you parents, or if you remember when you were young, you have those where you have to stick them by a light bulb or, or stick them in the sun's gaze, and then, and then they give off the energy that they've stored up. Moses gave off energy of light, transcendent, glorious light that had come to him. What do we see in the, in the transfiguration? Jesus is not like that. He's not just reflecting light. Light emanates from his very being. He is the source of light. He is the source of glory. What does this tell us? In the Exodus story, there are images like the burning bush, like the glory cloud. They're helpful representations of God. But Jesus is the glory of God. The disciples get to see behind the curtain, oh my goodness, He's not just an ambassador, not just a messenger. 
He is the very glory of God. As it says in Hebrews 1, Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact imprint of his nature. The disciples here are seeing God incarnate. It is God. It is the glory of God standing right before us. He is the very radiance of his glory. The three disciples get a sneak peek behind this curtain. And Peter later says in one of his letters, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Imagine that. What a moment. Jesus, therefore, is the ultimate way to understand who God is. If you are wondering, who is God? Who is God? Jesus, it says, is the exact image of his nature. If you want to know who God is, look at Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate way to understand who God is. He is the exact, perfect, unsurpassable, final display of who God is. Why does that matter for us? Well, there are two, uh, two things that we see that at first uh, may not uh, stick out to us. But if we look a bit further, we see two things here that are very helpful for us. Firstly, Jesus stands alone. We see this literally at the end of this account. The cloud disappears. Jesus stands alone. But we also hear that Peter, even though in the previous passage has said, you know, Jesus has said, who do people say that I am? He says, well, people say all sorts of things. Well, who do you say? I say you are the Christ. Even though Peter has got that head knowledge, has understood something of you are the chosen one of God. Here, Peter, at this moment, this devout Jew, he sees Elijah. He sees Moses. He thinks, oh my goodness, we've got the dream team here. We've got them all together. Moses, who he has been brought up with his teachings, the five books of the Torah written by Moses. Moses, who they refer to as the law of God. Here he is right now. It's possible that, that, that Peter didn't know which one to be more excited about. He may have even been more excited about seeing Moses. I mean, you can understand it, right? This guy's been dead for over a thousand years. Elijah standing there. No, I'm not judging him or blaming him for being amazed by this. But notice when he said, it's a good thing that we're here, which I find hilarious. It's a good thing that we're here. We can erect tents, a memorial, Moses, Elijah, Jesus, one for each of you. And as he's speaking, he's interrupted by God. This is my son. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. He's rebuked by the voice of God. Wow. See, the, the imperative for us, the, the um, implication, sorry, for us here is that we must make a choice here. We must make a choice. Either Jesus stands alone or he doesn't stand at all in our lives. You can't have it both ways. You can't put him in a line with others. You can't say, oh yeah, all these great people of history. We've got Mother Teresa, Gandhi, Jesus. We've got Martin Luther King Jr. We've got these amazing people. No, you cannot stand him alone. God the Father doesn't give Peter that option. No, this is my son. You ever ask that, that question? You ever think, yeah, I like Jesus. He's a good historical 
figure. I like, I like things he says. He, he comes up with good things. He's obviously very loving. Have you looked at it deeply? Have you looked at it carefully? Because some of the things that Jesus says are crazy. If he's not God, they are crazy. It actually makes more sense to say, let's make two pillars, one for Elijah, one for Moses, but let's leave out this Jesus because he is crazy. You know, he says at one point, I saw Lucifer fall from heaven. What? What are you claiming, Jesus? How long have you been around? Where were you at this moment? He says, I have sent you many prophets. You've rejected and killed them. What do you mean you've sent prophets? How long? Where have you been? Who are you claiming to be? See, we can't just claim that Jesus is a good teacher because he doesn't give us that option. The voice from heaven rebukes Peter. This is my son, my chosen one. The cloud lifts. Jesus stands alone. You cannot place him alongside others. You either reject him as evil, crazy, liar, or you bow down to him as God. There is no other choice here. That's the implication of this. He stands alone. Secondly, he is an undeniably supernatural person. He is undeniably supernatural. He's not a philosopher. He's not just a good teacher. He's not just a moral leader. He's not just a symbol for good. Here he is, and he's radiating light. It's undeniable in this scene, in this picture. He is supernatural. He is human, but he is more than human. He is not just human. You see, it's tempting for us as Christians to try and make Christianity more palatable. To try and deny the clear but sometimes quite uncomfortable supernatural nature of God. Modern people don't like the supernatural. And so we can play it down. We want to maintain credibility. So we, we talk about the wisdom of his teaching or, or the historical fact that he lived. But sometimes we want to water down the supernatural. But Christianity hangs on a supernatural man. A transfigured, glorious Jesus who was born miraculously, who lived every day miraculously, who died and rose again miraculously. Here we see the inescapable, supernatural nature of Jesus shining like the sun, displaying the glory of God, speaking to two people who have been dead for hundreds of years. American uh, Bible teacher Tim Keller says this, if you take the supernatural elements out of Christianity, you don't just tweak it a little bit. You have a different religion. He says, if you take the supernatural elements out of Christianity, there are specific consequences. Instead of having an uh, infallible Bible, you end up with a compendium of ancient writings. Some are good, some are bad, who knows? Instead of a Jesus who is the incarnate deity born of a virgin, you have a great teacher with a lot of God consciousness. Instead of a resurrection that is a miracle that happened in history, in time and space, you end up with a nice symbol of rebirth, of turning over a new leaf, trying harder. Instead of becoming a Christian through being born again by the infusion of the Holy Spirit, you have a Christianity that means trying to be a good person, trying to live a good life. 
That's not just watered down Christianity. That's not Christianity. The transfiguration shows us clearly, once again, this is a supernatural man, a supernatural God that we follow. Ironically, the places in the world that have tried to tone down the supernatural nature of God have seen the church decline. It's in the world where we see people holding on to, no, this supernatural God. This is who he really is. He is who he says he is. He died, he rose again, he's still alive today. He speaks today, he works today, he's active today. These are the places where we see the church thriving across the world. So that's who he's revealed to be in this passage. Secondly, what did he do? What what is revealed to us in the transfiguration that Jesus came to do? What did he do? Well, I found this so helpful as I studied this to realize that verse 31 says that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were chatting. Isn't that amazing? Well, it's the only gospel that says anything about what they were talking about. And it says this. They spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, how do you accomplish a departure? It doesn't really make a lot of sense. I'm going somewhere and accomplish a departure. Well, the amazing thing is that this word departure in the Greek, it means exodus. Jesus came to accomplish an exodus. What does that mean? What does that mean? Particularly if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might not understand the relevance of that. But this is a mighty truth for those who know their Bible a little bit. For those who have any background in the church, they would recognize, wow, Jesus came to accomplish an exodus. See, the exodus uh, goes back to the second book of the Bible that tells the story of when the Israelites, God, God's favored people, were in slavery. For hundreds of years, they were slaves to the Egyptians. They were in bondage. They were completely oppressed. They were not their own. They were owned by the leader of the Egyptians and the Egyptians. They were hopeless. They were without hope, humiliated, broken by back-breaking labor that was never-ending. 400 years, it had become their identity. This is who we are. We are slaves. We are broken. We are useless. We are helpless. We are hopeless. It dominated them. But in the Exodus, we see God becoming known as the rescuing God. The God of rescue that hears the cry as they cry out, God, would you save us? And it says... He heard their cry. He hears the cry of the broken. Exodus is where Israel find out that God is a God who liberates captives. Who sets people free by the power of his mighty outstretched arm. He moves in power in the story of Exodus to break them free, to liberate them from this horrendous, uh, overpowering enemy that has, has them in bondage. It becomes now the new narrative for the Israelites. 
throughout the rest of the Bible. They, they look back to their escape, their liberation, their exodus. And they look back to that and say, this is how we know who God is. This is now how we know what he's like. Remember, we were slaves, but we're no longer slaves. We're no longer because we know the God who liberated us, the God who brought us out of Egypt. This is their new narrative. This is their new identity throughout the rest of the Old Testament. No longer slaves, the rescued people of God, the cherished people of God. This is who we are. This is their identity. And it's how they knew who God is, the Lord their God, who brought them out of the land of Egypt. Their whole relationship to God is founded on this, the God who liberated them. He purchased their freedom. And here comes Jesus about to accomplish his exodus. Not merely liberating people from physical slavery, but actually from soul slavery, from heart slavery. The Bible was clear that our slavery is a slavery to sin, slavery to death, that our greatest need is actually to be reconciled to God, that there is sin within us that, that puts us at a distance from a holy God. Those who are weary and burdened like the Israelites, they find freedom in Jesus. Those who know there is something desperately wrong that they're unable to set themselves free from, they find freedom in Jesus. Freedom is offered to them in Jesus. See, the original exodus actually points to Jesus' exodus. It's supposed to show us what will come when God doesn't just liberate people physically from physical slavery, but liberates their soul, frees them from what is separating them from him at the very core, frees them from this curse of sin and death that has had a hold over man from the fall of Adam and Eve. Jesus is the greater Moses who liberates those bound up in slavery to sin, even the slavery of trying to please God with good behavior. Jesus is the mediator between God and man, the mediator who we find pays with his own life. This is his exodus that he's about to accomplish in Jerusalem. This is where he's headed towards his own death. See, in the Exodus story, the catalyst, the final moment, the the straw that breaks the camel's back for Pharaoh is when Pharaoh's son is killed. Oh, he says at last, go, go, get out. And they're freed. The gospel of Jesus teaches that freedom is found not through the son of the enemy dying, but through the son of God dying. Jesus is the lamb that was slain. He paid the price that sinful men should pay for their sinful hearts, for their rejection of God. Jesus said, I will take that upon myself. His death was on our behalf so that we could know and have complete freedom from the slavery of sin and death. This is the life that he has won for us. It says in Romans 8, verses 1 to 3, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. 
For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. That's the life that he's won for us. Freedom from the oppression of sin, the shackles of sin. Freedom from the slavery to fear that there is when judgment and condemnation hang over us. In verse 34 of the Transfiguration account, we see that the cloud comes towards the disciples and we see they are scared. Now, I would be scared as well. But there's something in that as well because they know their history. And back in in the Exodus story, the glory cloud, it is the glory of God. Anyone who touches that, anyone who is enveloped by it, is consumed. The glory cloud rests on Mount Sinai. And anyone who touches the mountain, even animals that touch the mountain, they die instantly. But here, this cloud comes and comes and envelops them. And it says, they don't die. The glory of God touches them and they don't die. See, this is the freedom that Jesus has won. That, that though we should rightfully die when, when coming into contact with the glory of God, because we know the freedom that of the one who stands alone, who stands with us, who has accomplished freedom from sin, who has paid the cost and the penalty for sin, we know that when the cloud of God's glory comes to touch us, we don't die. We're welcomed in. We stand with Jesus. If you are aware of a dull background guilt that just seems always to be there, like a cloud of shame that just drones on, perhaps condemnation that just pushes you down, you think, I can't get free from this. This is just kind of always there. I'm never feeling like I'm good enough. Then you must stand with Jesus who liberates completely who has paid the price completely. You must look at this and see this cloud of glory of God, the the cloud that could consume, the cloud that could bring judgment. It doesn't touch them. It doesn't bring death because they are with Christ, because he has already brought that liberation to them at the top of the Transfiguration Mountain. The cloud leaves. And what is left? Jesus in his glory. And finally, the voice of God says, listen to him. Listen to him. On this mountain, Jesus stands with Elijah on one side and Moses on the other in glory and splendor. But on the top of a hill in Jerusalem, in a short while, Jesus will accomplish his exodus on a bloody cross with two criminals one either side of him that splendor not quite there the glory is there though in Isaiah 53 it says he poured out his life unto death was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors he this Jesus who was set apart 
this Jesus who, who, who doesn't deserve to stand alongside anyone, no matter how great they are, he chose to be numbered with the most wretched, to be counted with sinners so that he could liberate sinners, so that he could draw them, it says in Psalm 40, out of the miry pit, put their feet on a rock. This is what the exodus of Jesus accomplishes. What does it mean for you today to listen to him? This voice from heaven, this is my son. This is my chosen one. Listen to him. What does it mean for you today to listen to him? I think it means to humble yourself. Open your heart. What do you have to say to me, Jesus? Where can you correct me? Where can you show me truth? See, these two criminals that were either side of Jesus at the cross, they had two very different experiences. One of them, I think we could say, chose to listen to him. The first one mocked, scorned, derided Jesus, scoffed at him. He can't save himself. What is he doing? But the other criminal, he recognized, no, I, I deserve this. I am a criminal. This man's done nothing wrong. He's innocent. And he's able to say to Jesus, will you, will you remember me? He asks Jesus to remember him. And in so doing, he receives exodus freedom. Jesus achieves the exodus for this man. Yes, he was a criminal. He did deserve punishment. But Jesus is the one who can liberate from the shackles of sin, from the shackles of death, set people free. And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. I've heard it said that hell is full of people who think they deserve heaven. Heaven is full of people who know they deserve hell. Our only hope is the God of Exodus, the greater Moses, the liberator of those who were once enslaved to sin and death. No way out, no way to accomplish it on our own, but because of his work, because of his accomplishments, because of his supernatural, miraculous, perfect life, his death, his miraculous resurrection, his paying for our guilt, our shame. We stand with the cloud not being consumed, not being judged, but knowing freedom, knowing joy, knowing it is finished. It's done. What I could never do, Christ has done for me. I encourage you, humble yourself. Come to him. Listen to him. Find your exodus freedom in him alone. Let me pray. Father God, we thank you that you sent your son to do what we could never do. We thank you that you saw, you heard the cry of those lost. You saw those broken. You saw people in bondage and you knew there's a way. I'm, pre I'm preparing a way. 
We thank you, Jesus, that you were determined, that you set your face like flint towards Jerusalem. You knew what you were about to accomplish. And we thank you that in you we find freedom. We find redemption. We find new life. We find new narrative, new trajectory, new identity. Father, we thank you for everything you have done. Just pray that you would help us by your Holy Spirit to know the depths of this freedom that you've won for us. In Jesus' name. Thanks so much for joining us. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Hope Church Ipswich. Please feel free to make a copy of this content 